Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Glad you're with us today, and we're brought to you again by Ritual, Good, Bad, and Crazy Martinis. Jim, let's get to the good, and the good is not actually good, but we're getting closer to the truth, and that's good. We're talking about nursing home deaths in the state of New York. It's been a huge controversy. Andrew Cuomo, of course, and his administration with the rule back during the early days of COVID that uh, nursing homes had to take back COVID-positive patients who had been in the hospital, even if they were still contagious. They couldn't refuse, and they couldn't even test people for COVID. So uh, since then, that order was rescinded. Uh, Cuomo tried to memory hole it, but the internet remembers forever, and so do the families of those who have lost people in nursing homes, likely as a result of this policy. And now we have a better idea of the number of people who died. Uh, This is from ABC News. New York may have undercounted COVID-19 deaths of nursing home residents by as much as 50%, The state's attorney general said in a report released Thursday. Attorney General Letitia James has for months been examining discrepancies between the number of deaths being reported by the state's Department of Health and the number of deaths reported by the homes themselves. Her investigators looked at a sample of 62 of the state's roughly 600 nursing homes. They reported 1,914 deaths of residents from COVID-19, while the State Department of Health logged only 1,229 deaths at those same facilities. If that pattern exists statewide, James' report said it would mean the state is underreporting deaths by nearly 56%. James' report, which her office described as preliminary, does mirror findings by others who have scrutinized New York statistics on nursing home deaths. An Associated Press analysis published in August concluded that the state could be understating deaths by as much as 65 percent based on discrepancies between its totals and numbers being reported to federal regulators. So, Jim, uh, we knew that the spin was on for a very long time on this. Uh, The numbers were probably being fudged or were being distracted into other things. Cuomo's been all about that over the past nearly year now. Uh, But we're getting closer to the truth and it's ugly but it's still better to know the truth. Yeah, a bad decision-making scandal has now been exacerbated by a cover-up scandal. And, you know, the, the old Washington saying of, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. No, I, I would say both of them are pretty big here. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a question of, you know, oh, the actual issue at hand is, is not uh, significant enough. I think it simply is revealing of both the personal and political character of Andrew Cuomo that the state government's response has been to cover it up. A summary of this report says, uh, preliminary data obtained by the Office of Attorney General suggests that many nursing home residents died of COVID-19 in hospitals after being transferred from their nursing homes, which is not reflected in the Department of Health's published total nursing home death data. By the way, Letitia James is the one who's also going after the NRA. And just to give an example of how things work on this podcast, I got a lot of beefs with that action on her part, which looks like a political vendetta, but... In this case, she is, give her credit, she is willing to offer an assessment that the governor is not going to welcome by any stretch of the imagination that could very well lead to serious political consequences for him. Um, this you know, affirms, as you said, the AP reporting that was earlier. Uh, it's even more egregious considering how he's already written a book and already talked about what a terrific job he had and all that stuff. Um, and these facts are not really in dispute anymore. This was a order from the governor's office, from the health department, ordering nursing homes to accept patients who had tested positive. They did this presumably because they were afraid of running out of beds in the hospitals, which is somewhat understandable. 
But you also put your, have to recognize that you have people who are extremely vulnerable to the virus and you're putting them back into close contact with people who are most likely to succumb to the virus. This was not an excusable policy. And Cuomo absolutely deserves to be uh, held accountable. Look, you know, at some point you have to wonder if the health department is putting out false data, have they violated some laws there? Is it time for not just a, a you know scathing report from the office of the attorney general, but is it time for indictments? Is it time for people to start resigning and getting fired? And what did the governor know and when did he know it? And this is further avenues for investigation that hopefully will not get soft pedaled. I would not bet in that direction, but uh, a pleasant surprise that Letitia James was not afraid to call it as she found it uh, and to really put uh, Cuomo in even further hot water. Things like this did not happen in states like Florida and South Dakota, yet Kristi Noem and Ron DeSantis are constantly the villains of COVID in the eyes of most of the mainstream media. Do you think Cuomo and his staff will get even a fraction of the criticism even after something like this comes out? My colleagues on our internal messenger board were saying clearly the only proper response to this is to impeach DeSantis. Look, we're still in the middle of this. We know everybody wants to be out of it. I heard one estimate today that they think another 90,000 people uh, could die in the next month alone from COVID. We don't want that to happen. Uh, We want to protect ourselves as much as possible. And part of that's building up the immune system. Look, ritual is not going to guarantee that you're not going to get COVID, but they can help you boost your immune system. And hey, that's that's a big help right now. But do you know what's in your multivitamin? Do you want sugars and GMOs and animal byproducts? A lot of them have those, but Ritual doesn't because it's not your typical multivitamin. Ritual's clean, vegan-friendly formula is made with key nutrients in forms that your body can actually use with no shady extras. I took another Ritual this morning. Uh, It's got a lot of important vitamins, got a lot of good B12 and and vitamin A and and vitamin D. Uh, It's even got some zinc in there, which is nice. Uh, and it's obviously got a, like a minty taste. Usually when you take uh, capsules, it's you know, kind of bland or maybe even not that good, and you just wash it down. Uh, but this one's actually got a little bit of a minty uh, taste to it. So Ritual does it the right way, and they couldn't make it easier, Jim. Ritual is designed with different life stages in mind. It's now available for women, men, teens. Ritual multivitamins, including their best-selling prenatal, are scientifically developed to help support different life stages. And Ritual makes healthy habits easy. Your multivitamins are delivered to your door every month with free shipping, always. You can start, snooze, or cancel your subscription anytime. And if you don't love Ritual within your first month, they'll refund your first order. You deserve to know what's in your multivitamin. That's why Ritual is offering 3 Martini Lunch listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash martini to start your ritual today. All right, Jim. Joe Biden off with another... Pile of executive orders yesterday, mainly focusing on climate. One of the big executive orders was to create the Office of a Climate Envoy, which makes John Kerry's job official, and we have to pay a salary, I guess. Uh, But John Kerry uh, was in the briefing room with climate czar Gina McCarthy, because apparently those are two different positions that are absolutely essential. And so the question actually came, a challenging question from the press corps, believe it or not. Hey, you're obviously looking to uh, make some changes to the economy here in order to meet this climate agenda. Uh, Right now, the oil and gas business is booming. A lot of good jobs there. What's your plan for those people? And John Kerry, of course, because he's in touch with the common man, uh, says, well, we'll just get other jobs. And the president of the United States has expressed in every comment he has made about uh, climate the need to uh, grow the new jobs that pay better, that are cleaner, that, I mean, 
You know, you look at the consequences of black lung for a minor, for instance, and measure that against the fastest growing job in the United States before COVID was solar power technician. The same people can do those jobs. But the choice of doing the solar power one now is a better choice. You should be thanking us for getting you out of your really well-paying job that you love because we think this one is better. But he's not the only one doing that. Jennifer Granholm, the Energy Secretary nominee, was essentially saying the same thing yesterday. Pete Buttigieg, soon to be the Transportation Secretary, and his confirmation hearing says, we are very eager to see those workers continue to be employed in good-paying union jobs, even if they might be different ones. So... Shot to the arm there of the uh, of the unions who are really mad about Keystone and some other decisions. Uh, so he's trying to keep all the constituents happy, Jim. But basically, uh, Joe Biden's going to decide which jobs are OK. If he doesn't like the one you have, well, that's just too bad. Yeah. I mean, let's observe that are there coal miners out there who could switch to becoming solar power technicians? I'm sure they exist, uh, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen easily. Someone has to pay to retrain those workers. Um, and then there are some, particularly those who are probably the latter half of their careers, who either won't be able to make that jump. It's not going to be, you know, you got to learn a whole new set of skills, a whole new set of uh, uh, expertise. These are guys who know how to do this. Now, are there certain types of transitions to new energies uh, where it'll be, you know, workable? Yeah, I was watching somebody discussing this yesterday, talked about how if you're drilling for oil and natural gas, drilling for geothermal is probably going to be comparable or capping these wells that are emitting methane. Sounds like the skills are fairly transferable, but let's observe. This isn't going to happen overnight, and those jobs are not necessarily going to be in the same place. I don't know if West Virginia and Western Pennsylvania are about to be a solar power uh, uh, boomtown. You know, it's one of those things where this is very casual and blithe, the way uh, John Kerry just kind of you know shrugs off and says, well, those people, and for that matter, Buttigieg both say, well, for that matter, you can find other jobs. I also think, you know, I think that, to paraphrase one of my colleagues, watching Pete Buttigieg, the former consultant for McKinsey Consulting, come in and say, yes, you're losing your job, but you really have to think about this as an opportunity, <laughs> really comes across as the uh, the epitome of the disingenuous and uh, thick-headed, out-of-touch corporate consultant who doesn't realize how the dis- consequences of his decisions and how they affect the lives of real people. All throughout today's morning, Jolt, I went through everything that was said on Climate Day yesterday, and they kept emphasizing, Climate Day really is Jobs Day. Well, look, for starters, you know, not for the Keystone Pipeline, right? You know, the, the company itself says a 1,000 jobs have just gone poof, disappeared. I know some other people have said put much higher numbers out there. That's from TC... Uh, directly. But the second thing to kind of keep in mind is you see this defense from the Biden administration and, and other folks outside the administration saying, well, look, those are construction jobs. Those are temporary jobs. Now, I know some people who are having some work done on their house and it feels like it's going on forever. But believe me when I say all construction jobs are temporary jobs. At some point, they stop building what they're supposed to be building, even the big dig up in Boston, and those jobs go away and the construction workers have to find a new one. That, so the idea of, oh, the, the Keystone Pipeline jobs were temporary. No, that, that's not an excuse. That doesn't mitigate this in, in any sh- way, shape, or form. This was a massive project that was going to go through several states, and now it's all poof, gone. And uh, you know, could, you know, could they create additional jobs through green energy? Sure. But each time, to take, for example, the Biden administration's claim they're going to purchase more electric vehicles for the federal government. Well... If they say to GM or to Chevy or to these other companies, we want to buy a lot more electric vehicles, 
then that might create jobs at GM or Chevy or these other companies because they'll say, oh, okay, well, we need to build a lot more of them, so we'd better expand our assembly lines and hire more workers, and eh, that's great. But when the federal government says we're buying those electric vehicles, it then means they're not buying non-electric vehicles, which means the assembly lines for all the non-electric vehicles suddenly have significantly fewer orders. And those assembly lines are going to have layoffs. Now, could some of those folks jump from one to the other? Sure. Kind of paraphrasing the, the scenario that uh, John Kerry sees of coal miners going working on solar panels. The problem is you can't then say, as Joe Biden insisted yesterday, this is going to create one million new jobs. Because along the way, it's going to eliminate a whole bunch of other old jobs for making the cars that you're no longer purchasing. But nobody wants to hear about that, Greg. It's all, all upside, no downside. So remember when you weren't allowed to say learn to code on Twitter? Yeah, that, this is pretty much the equivalent of that, <laughs> this is right? The new learn to code. Big tech is censoring conservative speech and Democrats will be controlling the White House and Congress. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter. Join me on The Sarah Carter Show and we will dig deep into the big issues together. Look, as an investigative reporter, I'll ask the questions no one else is asking. Share personal stories covering wars, the border and the D.C. swamp and bring on guests who know what's really going on. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And let's just stipulate at the beginning of this crazy martini that neither of us are Wall Street gurus. I can't explain it well, other than that it smacks very much of how Lewis Winthorpe and Billy Ray Valentine ruined the Duke brothers, buying real high and then letting the frozen concentrate orange juice market crash back in the mid-1980s and the Duke brothers went out of business. Uh, so what's happening here is it appears uh, that hedge fund traders are trying to short sell, meaning bet on stocks to go down for uh, stocks like GameStop and AMC theaters. And so then individual investors, which uh, have platforms like Reddit, especially in this case, uh, decided to drive those prices up and uh, create billions of dollars in losses for the hedge fund uh, traders. And that seems to have uh, had quite the impact the last couple of days on Wall Street to the point where the subreddit uh, platform for Wall Street was shut down briefly. And now today, the Robinhood and Ameritrade platforms uh, are shut down as a result for those particular stocks. And so some see it as taking it to the man, taking it to the elites, which try to control everything. Others say it's creating too much chaos. But it's amazing to see, Jim, from right, left, and kind of in the middle, how many people are kind of sitting back and going, good for them. I'm not sure what the long-term impact is here. A lot of people could lose some money that they probably can't afford to lose when this inevitably goes down, perhaps soon and perhaps sharply. But a uh, little disruption isn't necessarily a bad thing. Well, first of all, Greg, my first thought is, did trading places do more to teach Americans about the stock market than like any college course ever? <laughs> it might have. I mean, that's you're not the first person I've seen using that parallel and using that metaphor. It's the one frame of reference we all have for the <laughs> stock market for, for uh, issues like this. First of all, I, I think what what frustrates me about the discussion of this in the last couple of days is and it's you know apparently there was a guest on NPR who said this was a this should be considered harassment of the poor hedge fund managers. <laughs> um, I, I guess we figured out what it takes to get the media to treat hedge fund managers as sympathetic, good people. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's being attacked by a bunch of Redditor people. Look, my understanding, every now and then the boys will want to buy something at GameStop. And the gist is that GameStop is in trouble, if not in the very short term, but then in the long term, because more and more people are downloading their video games over the internet, um, purchasing it that way, and thus they don't need to go to the store and purchase it at GameStop. And of course, if you have a retail store, you got to pay the rent. Um, 
you have all the you have to pay your employees. There's all kinds of infrastructure costs that go with it. And I guess the the trend in the video game industry is more and more to purchase your games online, the same way people purchase their films and streaming and all that kind of stuff. So you know, you don't see people purchasing DVDs the way they used to, to say nothing of you know the old VHS tapes and stuff. So for much of the past two years, GameStop stock was like ten dollars or less. And the group of, you know, the, the Redditors basically decided, well, we're going we're gonna to build this up. We're going to yeah, everybody go out and buy a share and we're going to pump this up because there are certain hedge fund managers who are shorting it. Without going into a lot of detail, short is, shorting a stock is basically betting that it will go down. And the idea is that the company, you know, fails or the company stock, you know, drops a great deal and everybody else is losing their shirt, but you're profiting because you've effectively placed a bet that it was going to go down significantly. And the more it goes down, the better off you are. There are some people who find short selling morally bothersome or something like that. But if you have this insight and you think that, and somebody else is willing to bet against you, well, then it seems relatively fair. I don't think there are any heroes in this story. I think everybody's operating from the same you know drive or desire there, which is we want to make a lot of money. Hedge fund managers wanted to make a lot of money by assuming that GameStop was you know already low and going to go down even lower. These redditors want to make money by saying, "Oh no, we 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 can do this by driving up demand for these shares, so that the price goes up, and along the way, we will make a lot of money because we already have a bunch of these shares. We bought them at less than ten, and I think as of this morning, there were something like three hundred and forty-seven dollars or something like that. Now, as we record this, and by the time people hear this, <laughs> it's going to go down. In fact, my understanding is it already went down a bunch uh, as of this morning." You know, the problem is the people who are jumping, every time there's a buy, there's a purchase and a sale. There's somebody on the other side of that transaction. So every time somebody's buying this at, you know, $340, you know, they've gotten it from somebody and somebody's gotten $340 for that. And maybe they purchased it for $10 or $12 or even less. So they made a bunch of money. And if you're talking about lots of shares, there are a bunch of people who became millionaires on paper. In just the last 48 hours or something like that, the value of the stock just you know increased by 35 times. That's terrific if you can get out in time because everybody knows nothing about GameStop actually changed. Same number of stores, same number of you know Pokemon Go and all these other games and stuff like that. You know, the fundamentals of that company are exactly the way they were a week ago, two weeks ago, or three weeks ago. This is a classic speculative bubble. And I suspect that most of our listeners have lived through a couple of these. Maybe you remember the dot-com bubble. Maybe you remember the real estate bubble, right? These things happen when all of a sudden this is, oh, everything's really valued. The, the value of anything is determined by what somebody's willing to pay for it. Have you ever had to try to sell your house? It doesn't matter what Zillow says it's worth. It doesn't matter what uh, any of these other sites or the tax uh, records indicate. The value of your home is what somebody else is willing to pay for it. And if you happen to be trying to sell it, at a time when the market is really lousy, <clears throat> not that I'm speaking from experience, you know, you're, you're in trouble because the value of your home is what somebody else is willing to pay for it. The value of it as of yesterday was three, uh, of, of uh, the value of GameStop stocks as of yesterday was $347. That's great. But if you have it tomorrow, there's no guarantee it's going to be anywhere near that high. And at some point, it's probably going to go back to closer to $10. So the question, it's like a game of hot potato. It's a game of musical chairs. At some point, all of this irrational exuberance is going to end. Now, I don't like the way the, uh, these various you know, trading sites have said, oh, we're not going to let you sell it anymore. We're not going to let you buy it anymore. Um, that does feel like interference in the market. you know. But it's, so it's one of those things like, look, if you're involved in this, I wish you luck. It strikes me as extremely risky. I hope you didn't buy this stock high. If you bought it low and you, you it's now you, you've made a bundle, great. You probably want to sell and get out. 
for those of us who keep our money in a 401k or an IRA and a nice, you know, diversified and not all, all based on one stock, we can watch this from afar and hope it turns out for, well for everybody, but it probably won't. Somebody's going to end up losing their shirt and, uh, you know, just hope it's not our listeners out there. Well, we definitely want our listeners to do very well and to make wise decisions. I mentioned at the beginning of this, Martini, that you had some strange bedfellows here. Charles Payne had a rant against uh, Wall Street and how they reacted to all this, basically taking the side of the individual traders. Uh, you also had Elizabeth Warren in kind of a weirder, more uh, confusing way, taking the side against Wall Street, of course. And then you had Shark Tank guys, Kevin O'Leary and Mark Cuban, also loving what they were seeing. But for the most head-slapping take of the day, you have to go to Chris Saliza of CNN, whose headline says, How Trumpism Explains the GameStop Stock Surge. Jim, I know it's difficult to let someone go when you've been with them for four years, actually longer if you include the first campaign. Uh, but Chris Saliza, you just have to move on, man. You've got to let it go. Yeah, you know, he, he needs to let it go even more than Elsa does. <laughs> um, the, the, the other observation I'm going to just kind of throw out here is, like, look, it's okay to be confused by this. You and I usually talk about politics. This isn't the sort of thing we're, we're up to speed on. What I loved was a comment from Nancy Pelosi that basically kept calling it interesting. <laughs> and later she elaborated that, well, I understand the administration is looking at this and the SEC is looking at this, but I really find it interesting. <laughs> and I've never related more to Nancy Pelosi ever before in my life. It's the kind of answer a lawmaker gives when she has no idea what's going on and doesn't want to admit so. So um, hopefully minimally damaging and all that kind of stuff. But it's okay to say, hey, I have no idea what's going on with this because this is uh, outside your, your the usual realm of expertise and it's kind of complicated and involves kind of an odd obscurities there. Yeah. Uh, interesting is a good way to put it, or we're really going to have to look into this. I'll get back to you on that. Something uh, uh, which... Uh, it's okay for lawmakers to say, no, I have no idea what's going on with this. <laughs> I, it's not like this has been a long brewing topic here. Came out of nowhere. Uh, it involves quoting guys with names who are like, you know, Big Pants 69 and stuff <laughs> like that. You know, kind of the, look, this is a really weird story and it's okay for lawmakers to say, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm not going to rush to regulate this or, or pass any laws in response to this until I finally understand it. If only they would do that on a myriad of other issues that they don't really understand, but uh, yeah. never stop talking about. So, Jim, that's Thursday. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about our friends over at Ritual, ritual.com slash martini. Also, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We are grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Remember to get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And we will be back on Friday. See you then on the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.